Good afternoon and welcome to Talk of the Towns. We try to go beyond the headlines to make sense of the issues facing Maine communities, to share what works, to seek alternative solutions. Talk of the Towns is aired on WERU Community Radio since 1993, dedicated to the proposition that everyone benefits when we share our knowledge, our experience, our concerns, and our perspectives. We're about to practice the magic of community radio in which those of us in the studio and you who are listening create a dialogue that we hope will be of benefit to our friends, our neighbors, and colleagues. I'm your host, Ron Beard, hoping you'll stay with us for the next hour and talk of the towns. And just a reminder that during the pandemic, we're recording this show in advance, so we won't be taking any calls today. So since the 1970s, land trusts in Maine have worked to protect land and natural resources. Sometimes they own the land outright. Sometimes they work with landowners to create binding restrictions on the uses of their land. Along the way, land trusts have provided public access and educational resources. So as land trusts kind of look at the last 50 years, they recognize that um, land protection has been um, one of their primary um, goals. But what about the next 50 years? What will that look like? And today we have some guests with us who can begin to talk about that uh, next 50 years, the legacy, uh, building on the legacy of land protection. Um, Hans Carlson is with us. He's the executive director of Blue Hill Heritage Trust. He's joined by Sarah Simon, a program director of, uh, for Maine Farmland Trust, and her responsibility has to do with farmland access and farm viability. And Siona Albrecht, who is a senior is a senior project manager at Maine Coast Heritage Trust. Welcome to you all. I'm so glad you're with us. Thanks, Ron. So. Um, um, what I might like you to do is just to kind of share a little bit of, of background for listeners about your organizations. Um, so Hans, could you get us started and, and just talk a little bit about uh, Blue Hill Heritage Trust? Sure. Um, so Blue Hill Heritage Trust is the local land conservation organization for the Blue Hill Peninsula. Um, and we we cover the towns of the peninsula. We don't go off and onto uh, Deer Isle or Stonington. That's another organization. Um, and we um, have been in existence since 1986, uh, starting as an all volunteer organization um, for the first 15 or 16 years or so. Um, and then slowly growing uh, to our current size, which is a staff of six, um, in addition to the board of directors. And, and our, uh, our mandate is uh, land protection. So um, conserving land and water resources. Um, that's the thing that we've been doing for 36 years now. Um, we have an educational component to our um, organization, uh, doing outreach, um, particularly increasingly around uh, land stewardship um, and um, engaging with sort of the working landscape in a number of different ways. Um, and then uh, we also, the, the third part of our mission is to um, promote ecological, economic, and community health um, for this and future generations. And that's the part of the, that's the part of our mission, mission statement, which we are still sort of learning to inhabit. <laughs> And, and it may very well be that that's a, a large part of the sort of things that we're talking about today is um, what's, you know, what, how are land trusts moving into something more than just protecting land? Right. In addition to land of ecological significance, um, I believe Blue Hill Heritage Trust has also um, worked on the farmland side as well a little bit. And so that'll that'll um, transfer into Sarah's uh, contribution. But um, Hans, you might say a little bit about that, some of the, those efforts. Yeah. So back in the 90s in particular, we had a couple of board members who were uh, Paul Birdsall and, and Dennis King, who were um, very invested in farmland conservation. And, and Blue Hill Heritage Trust um, did some, at the time, some pretty innovative things with uh, farmland conservation in terms of actually buying farms, restricting them, and then selling them back to, to farmers that are at a reduced price. Um, and Paul and Dennis then went on to be founding uh, members of uh, Maine Farmland Trust. So there's a, there's a direct link, link between those two organizations. Great. Well, let's um, have Sarah Simon with Maine Farmland Trust uh, pick up that story. Um, tell us about um, your organization. Great. Thanks for having me here. It's great to be here with Hans and Siona. 
I'm Sarah Simon. I'm the Farm Viability and Farmland Access Program Director at Maine Farmland Trust. We're a statewide organization that protects farmland, supports farmers, and advances the future of farming. And that has meant, and what many people in the state know us for, is our work protecting farmland, which we do by placing easements purchased or donated on farms that remain in the ownership of the farmers or landowners. So unlike a lot of other land trusts in the state, we don't own a lot of land. We do projects like the ones that Hans was describing that Paul Birdsall started, uh, where we purchase farms and hold them for a brief period of time to get them protected. But our goal is usually to keep the farms in the hands of the farmers. And that's a, a big part of what we hope the outcome of our easements will be is that they'll make land more affordable as it transfers and able to stay in active farming. Um, MFT has been around for about 20 years. I showed up about a year and a half ago, which I think reflects our organization's commitment to expanding the work that we do beyond the land protection work. So my position was a new one and it was really intended to focus on how we keep farms in farming by supporting farmers, because while an easement will protect the land in order for a farm to be viable, it has to work as a business. It has to work for the individuals and their quality of life. It has to work to keep its soils healthy and in good stead. So these are all the kind of related issues that I think over our 20 years we've seen are a very important part of the overall picture, which is keeping farming alive in Maine. And um, it's great to be in this conversation with other land trusts, because even though we're a little unusual as a land trust, it often really helps us to work with other land trusts that are more connected in different parts of the state. They have their ear to the ground as far as knowing when farms might be transferring and can often work with us to protect some of the ecological value because we're really focused on protecting the farmland. Hmm. So I want to tell us a little bit about Maine Coast Heritage Trust. You're probably the oldest, one of the oldest um, land trusts in the state. And and you're in some ways you're different because you're a statewide organization as well as an or, a local organization. Tell us a little bit about Maine Coast Heritage Trust. Yeah, sure. Thanks for having us all, Ron. It's great to be part of this conversation with two organizations with whom I get to partner often. So um, as you say, this is a good collaborative atmosphere in Maine where we all work on this work. Um, so I'm here from Maine Coast Heritage Trust, as you mentioned. <clears throat> and Ron, you talked about 50 years, uh, and that's actually roughly how old our organization is. Um, there actually was a first land trust in Maine, I believe in 1901. So there actually is a land trust presence much older than ours, um, but we were founded in 1970 really the year after the, the conservation easement was formed as a tool in Maine in 1969. Um, and our organizations had an interesting history. Um, as you said, we are a statewide nonprofit organization uh, focused mostly on the coast and coastal area, but we have a sort of a dual mission of, of conservation of important landscapes um, but also statewide leadership in terms of having a network for the land trusts around Maine. Maine is rich with land trusts with over 85 of them here in the state doing this work. And so uh, we have a two-part um, mission and um, really have, we began through working mostly with the conservation easement as a tool. So that's a set of permanent restrictions on privately owned land. We mostly worked in concert with others so that they held the interests. And we have really grown to now have a, uh, a lot of holding ourselves. Uh, we own and manage a lot of lands, hold a number of conservation easements throughout the state, and really have a broad portfolio of work. And I think that's what we're going to dig into a little today, um, ranging from helping to build the National Wildlife Refuge that secures nesting islands for migratory seabirds to working farms and working forest and coastal access points. So we really have a broad range of work and uh, uh, great partners to do it with. Could you describe just a little bit what a conservation easement, how, how it works? Um, that's the principal tool for protecting land or preserving land. 
Sure. It is a principal tool for sure, um, particularly in Maine where property taxes are a concern. Um, so the, so land trusts will usually, will often, not always, own and manage properties, um, but also will hold something called what in Maine is called a conservation easement. And that's really a set of permanent restrictions, usually restricting building or division on a property um, while it stays in private ownership. And that partnership over time is a permanent one. Uh, so whether the land is gifted or sold, it stays restricted and the land trust needs to uphold those restrictions and monitor them really on an annual basis. So it's a long-term commitment and it's a partnership of, of two entities, really. Right. And again, it's not the, the, the primary um, goal is to protect that land, but the landowner does um, derive some financial benefit from entering into that if um, property taxes are taken into account. Is that right? Um, not always. And okay. in fact, that's shifting a bit, but often there is there can be an income tax um, uh, deduction for the gift value of the easement. But um, it's interesting how that is, you know, that varies and depends on case by case. Um, but there can also be, you know, Maine has a current use tax program. So landowners can sometimes uh, benefit from reduced property taxes if there's a conservation easement restricting use on their land. But I, I guess the the uh, often people are are driven by saying this is really valuable um, land to me. Um, I really appreciate the conservation value, and I want to protect it into the future. And this is a vehicle for doing that. That's absolutely right. 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 Well, Hans, let's go back to you. Um, a, a while back, you and I were in a conversation, and you said, "Well, you know, for the for fifty years or so, um, land protection has been the primary." kind of motivating um, force for, for land trusts. But you're um, wondering, and you described it in your kind of the third um, mission, along with land protection and education, you said, um, what about helping communities um, uh, kind of grow um, health-wise, um, economically, um, all of those kinds of things? Talk a little bit about how you came, kind of came to that question um, using your own organization, perhaps as a lens for that. Yeah, I think that thought occurred to me first. Um, I was preparing some comments for um, uh, the celebration of one of our founding board members who's still on the board, um, Peter Clapp. And I was thinking back over the course of the 36 years of, of our organization's history. And, and it, it sort of occurred to me that, that um, the work that we are doing now, particularly land land protection um, seems pretty obvious to us, right? Well, of course, that's what you do, right? Um, but 36 years ago, 50 years ago, it really wasn't that obvious. In fact, it was sort of controversial um, in a lot of people's eyes. Um, and a lot of people didn't like it and didn't think it was necessary. Um, and uh, I think the challenge for us as conservation organizations today is to continue to continue to do what we you know what is obvious but also try to figure out what in 36 or 50 years is going to look obvious and that doesn't look obvious today um, and that's I think where we get into the other aspects of all of our, our missions which is <clears throat> which is really connecting people with land in various ways um, connecting com communities with land. Um, and not just our own communities, but also thinking about other communities in Maine um, who are not necessarily always thought of as part of sort of our local community. Um, and that's that for me is where a lot of the really interesting and innovative work is happening um, in the land trust world is uh, uh, is trying to advance conservation, not only by protecting pieces of property ourselves, but also engaging people with a relationship with the land, which hopefully will lead to communities, cultures, cultures that actually care for the land, even if it isn't owned by an organization or held under an easement or any, and any of the tools that we use. So what would that kind of look like? I mean, I can think of um, even, even 
um, probably 50 years ago, one of the ways in which you encourage people to use the land was through the construction of trails. Right. And, and we, we think of the trail up um, uh, Blue Hill Mountain as one of the kind of signature uh, pieces of work for Blue Hill Heritage Trust. But what, what are some of the other things that, that that connection looks like for you? Yeah, the, the trails, trails on Blue Hill Mountain are really interesting to think about because for the first six, seven, eight years of, of our history, we really focused on conservation easements, right? That was really the tool that we thought we were going to use as an organization. And protecting the mountain for recreational access was actually, I think, the first thing that really pushed Blue Hill Heritage Trust into owning property um, as opposed to just holding easements. And I think for me, the the, the, the recreational engagement that people have on our lands is really valuable. And we certainly saw that in the last two years. Um, you know, we, we can firmly make, now make the argument that we're not just, you know, sort of frosting on the cake, but we are in fact part of the public health infrastructure on the peninsula. Um, and people really engage that way. I personally want to see that go deeper. Um, I, th- I want to go beyond recreation and I want I want to make the trust the conduit through which people can really put their hands on the land, right? Because um, that's the primary human experience, in my opinion, um, working with the land. Um, and whether that's gardening or, you know, hunting or, or, or you know, a whole variety of activities, um, that expression of relationship with the land is really of tremendous importance going forward because um, mm-hmm. you can recreate on land without really knowing it very well. <clears throat> if you have to engage with it at a deeper level, you have to know it, you have to build relationship with it. Um, and that's where, you know, culturally, I think we're in dire need of moving in that direction. So one of the ways in which you've kind of begun to think about that is, is the practice of, of hunting. Um, on on con- conserved lands, that's certainly a traditional use for um, Maine people, and yet it, in some ways it's endangered because um, when the private property no trespassing sign goes up, it means that hunters can't access land that they might have had um, access for generations. Talk a little bit about the relationship with the hunting community that you've experienced. Yeah, so most of our land is open for hunting. We have a few properties that are restricted. I I don't know off the top of my head what the percentage is, but most of the private conservation land in the state is open for some sort of hunting access, Um, uh, which is one of the reasons why conservation continues mostly to be a pretty bipartisan uh, issue and and sort of uh, um, valued across communities in, in, in Maine is that um, that traditional use is is protected on most uh, conservation properties. I, in my experience, have found hunters to be um, some of the most caring, some of the most um, in, uh, knowledgeable people about land, some of the most curious people about the environments and ecosystems in which they are are hunting. Um, if you are a good hunter, you need to know the land you're on really intimately um, if you're going to be successful. And so that that to me is one of those relationships that, you know, it, it obviously is not just hunting, right? But that sort of deep connection that you have to make with a with um, a geography with a with a landscape in order to successfully get some food off it um, is is of deep deep value um, mm-hmm. in a in a culture and you know sort of Western culture which is highly dif- disengaged um, to a great extent from the land which is the foundation of everything for us, <laughs> right? We, we don't live without land. So Sarah, um, you could take it a little bit further because if hunters need to know the land, farmers clearly need to know the land. Um, talk a little bit about um, that relationship of farmers to land and then um, talk about the, the farm viability effort that you're engaged in, which is an example of, if we look back in 20 years, yes, we've got to have viable farms. It's, it's really clear. So great, go ahead. Sure, yeah. The land, of course, is the foundation of success for many farmers. And 
not just because the health of the soil determines the health of the crops and their viability as a business, but also because for so many farmers now, land is their main source of retirement funds, it's their equity, it's the inheritance that they pass to their children. And I think that the different relationship that farmers have to land is part of why our conservation work looks a little different from many other land trusts in that, um, and I'm glad that Sayana gave us our, our easement 101. I was sort of ready to do that. But um, the one thing that's different about the way we do easements is that we're often purchasing the easements. And that is really important because of the unique relationship that so many farmers have to the value of their land. Often the reason that so many farms end up getting developed is not only because they're beautiful, flat, fertile land, perfect for putting a subdivision on, but because the farmer feels the financial pressure to sell to a developer when they're ready to retire and extract the value from the land. And you can hardly blame them. Farming is not a lucrative profession. So we understand that. And that's why it's really important for us to compensate farmers when we essentially purchase their development rights by placing an easement. And that's usually for, so this is something where we go and do an appraisal. We don't compensate the full value, but that practice allows us to feel like we're contributing to the farm's viability through paying the farmer for the easement. And I think that kind of speaks to this tension that we feel that I'm sure other land trusts do as well between thinking about the long-term future of the land and the short-term future of the land. And we're trying to think about both. And that's where my programs come in. You know, we're thinking in the long run, will Maine have enough farmland? Will we have places to grow food, you know, depending on whatever the future needs where this huge land base here in New England with a large population, it feels really important to have farmland. And yet in the short term, we also really want to keep farms afloat in the state even when the economic tide is certainly working against small farms in general in this country and particularly in the Northeast, it is very hard to run an economically viable small farm. But we still know that that's important for the short-term health of the soils, for keeping farms in our communities and all around us, and for feeding, feeding people good, fresh food. So that's why purchasing easements is really important. We hope that that helps the farmers in the short term. And we also hope that by placing easements, we're reducing the resale value of the farm as it goes to the next generation. And um, later on, I'd like to talk more about, you know, what we've learned in 20 years. Uh, you know, for me as a newer person to the world of land trusts, it's, I guess I, I'm just thinking back to what Hans said about that feeling like the bread and butter obvious work. And I think, both for me personally and my side of things and for Maine Farmland Trust, we're currently looking at what we've done with our easements and reflecting on whether they've had the impact we wanted them to have. You know, do they actually reduce the resale value? Do they make it easier for farmers to get on the land? Um, I think we're kind of in a, a space of now looking at all the easements we have, which is quite a lot, even in 20 years. We now hold I think about 260 easements on 40,000 acres. So we've moved at this really rapid pace and we're really interested in seeing, so what has this done in the short term? I think long-term we know the land will stay open, um, we'll enforce those easements, but, but we really wonder about how it's supporting farms here and now. And that's really where my programs have come from, which focus on access to farmland through our our linking website, which is called FarmLink, uh, which lists farms that are available and also where people who are looking for farmland can post a profile and find farm owners that way, perhaps. And then also our business planning programs, which I also oversee, where we help farms scale up and grow their businesses through a combination of courses on financial literacy expert assistance from consultants on everything from graphic design to financial forecasts, and then providing grants as well to help farmers implement their business plans. So those, of course, are, are well outside of what a land trust might typically do, but these are in different initiatives that we've taken on in the last five years to try and help with the short-term horizon for so many farms. And um, we're even expanding a little bit further, we've started some new programs to support farms trying to improve their soil health and adapt to climate change, which I'm happy to talk more about later. 
But those efforts feel especially important now, I think, because um, they really touch on the future of the land, which we've invested in, which the farmers have invested in. And yet the challenge of climate change is going to arrive and we want to make sure that farmers are poised to adapt to a very uncertain future. Mm. But could you tell a story about, um, you know, uh, uh, where you've helped um, Maine Farmland Trust has helped perhaps a, um, a farmer who's willing to pass on the land but needed some assistance in making the match? And tell, tell a story if you would. Sure, I'd be happy to. Yes. Um, I know that one one great project that we, is, I believe, in progress right now in your area on the Blue Hill Peninsula um, is at Clayfield Farm. And this is a property that I think, interestingly enough, the link that these landowners made with the young farmer happened entirely through our FarmLink website and their own negotiations versus being one of our easement projects where we're protecting the land too. And I think that speaks to the importance of, for us, having these other methods for land to pass from generation to generation an easement may not always be the right match for people, depending on what they're looking for. But in this case, um, Clayfield Farm, which is in Blue Hill, owned by uh, Phil Norris and Deborah, what's your last name? Wiggs. Wiggs. Deborah Wiggs. And, and um, Phil, Phil is a is a broadcaster here on WERU. So uh, hats off to, to Phil and, and Deborah has been a, a longtime supporter for WERU oh, as well. So go ahead. Yeah. Hats off. Um, yes, so they they were ready to find new ownership for their farm and went about it, I think, in a really thoughtful way, trying to find young farmers who were a match for their vision for the farm and the organic practices they hoped to continue and the community emphasis that they've had. And also a, a kind of personal match, too, because my understanding is that Phil and Deborah would like to stay on their farm, even while seeing the active farming pass on to new farmers. So they were really looking for kind of that that unicorn, the people that they would like as people and as farmers and who they could entrust their business to. And fortunately, they found it. Um, they found a couple of great young farmers who I happened to meet. They were working at Frith Farm down in my neck of the woods in southern Maine. And um, we're so delighted by making this connection with Phil and Deborah, who very generously are going to work with them over multiple years to transition the farm to their ownership. And I believe in a pretty unique arrangement where there's there won't be an official sale um, or valuation of the business, but just a gradual transition. So for me, as a, both a young farmer and Maine Farmland Trust staffer, that's very inspiring to see because accessing land is one of the main barriers that young farmers face when they're trying to get started. And having an older generation that's not only willing to teach the skills, but also provide the land that will give these young farm couples a, a long-term future, I think that's a really important and unique offering that Phil and Deborah were able to make. And it's very exciting to see projects like this where the terms are really set by the landowners and with their intentions and their own specific vision for the farm that they're going to be able to carry out. We often do projects where, you know, the transition has to happen quickly. So we come in and protect the land and try to help find a new farmer. But it's great to see farmers thinking ahead like Phil and Deborah are and taking the time to build a relationship so that their farm will continue being what they want it to be into the future. Great, thanks. And Siona, um, again, we've talked about Maine Coast Heritage Trust as a, a statewide organization, um, mostly on the coast. Um, talk a little bit about the work that you envision taking things forward. Um, in addition to land protection, you're looking at kind of habitat scale um, efforts, um, uh, river corridors, um, connecting the rivers and the sea, the lakes and the sea. Talk a little bit about that work. And, and I really want to hear about the work on, on the Blue Hill Peninsula around alewives. But uh, give us the yeah. broad, broad picture and then we can focus. Great. Glad to do that. And um, yeah. Um, so, yes, you talked about sort of looking forward and, and what this work might might look like and needs to look like. Um, you're right, we have a, a broad set of focus areas. So we have one sort of initiative that we're focused on where we're trying to work on um, 
marshes and climate change and thinking about where they move and what needs to happen and thinking about that. And we actually work jointly with Maine Farmland Trust uh, because there are a number of farms that are in marshland or future marshland. And so we have a joint initiative with them focused on really taking a look at that, gathering the data, assessing it, and and working on protection measures, um, always with that economic engine of farming uh, in mind. So um, that's one initiative. We also have a coastal access initiative so that uh, we talked about hunting earlier, but there's also shellfish or worming. You know, there are a lot of um, industries that are so tied to our natural resources and helping to make sure that those can stay intact over time is an important part of this work. And then you asked about rivers. Um, yes, we have an initiative focused on trying to think of rivers sort of as a whole, a watershed really, so that not just the main stem river that we might think about, but all the streams and the ponds that flow into it and the lands around them. And those are all interconnected and starting to realize that and focus in a way that that um, tries to, you know, not not make every river undeveloped and unbuilt, but focus on a few and, and really work with the communities around them. Um, so you brought up the alewife effort. <laughs> That's right here in the Bagaduce River on the Blue Hill Peninsula. Um, that for us is a focus area and has been since the 1980s. We have a number of focus areas around the state um, and the Bagaduce River has long been one. Um, and it's a place where we've really thought a lot about not just the ecosystem and the, um, the natural landscape, but also the communities within them. Um, so that's a place where we have a, a committee called a three-town alewife committee that has been vital to my work in bringing local support um, from within the town government and within the communities to this work and that incorporating that thinking and people who have come with me to every one of those local meetings, because as you noted, Ron, we are a statewide organization uh, and yet, you know, having people in the local communities come along and demonstrate their support for an effort and put their thinking into it can be so helpful in getting it right uh, and doing it well. So in the Bagadoo since about 2017, we've done five uh, fish passage restoration projects. Um, and one in particular, I think is a great demonstration of how we probably need to work moving forward thinking about community, which is at Walker Pond, the outlet of Walker Pond in Brooksville. And that's really the headwaters of the Bagaduce River. So it's so important ecologically. It's also a site that had a long, I believe the longest running mill in Brooksville on it. So there's a lot of heritage tied to an old dam that is still there. Um, and it also is a key source of fire protection water for the firefighters around the peninsula. So this one little pond and a four acre property uh, had all of that that needed to be thought about um, in doing a construction project really last year where not only did Maine Coast Heritage Trust buy that four acres, uh, but also embarked on a expensive but important uh, engineering exercise and then construction project. So really bringing in, you know, dump trucks and cranes um, to stabilize the dam, to um, improve fish passage for an alewife population that's been going up that stream around the mill for hundreds of years, probably thousands of years. Um, and um, and work with the community to put in a new dry hydrant so that the, the firemen could um, draw that water in a much better, safer way uh, and create a little space that actually later this week should be turned over to the two towns of Brooksville and Sedgwick to jointly own and manage while we actually withhold, we were talking about conservation easements, Maine Coast Heritage Trust will withhold restrictions on that land, always making sure that it's available to the public for daytime access. Mm. So that's maybe just one little example, but I think that, that uh, the need to work with people in the communities is going to be more and more important over time, especially on these that involve so many different aspects 
So while you're not a fisheries expert, um, you can probably give listeners a sense of why alewives are important. <laughs> sure. Tell yes. us a little bit. Yeah. Yes, I'm definitely not a fisheries expert, but this is gets back to, again to the importance of partnering with organizations and people who are. So I had great partners here, many of them fisheries experts, and I'll, I'll shout out to Maine Center for Coastal Fisheries as the key one. Um, but uh, alewives are a species of river herring, <clears throat> and they're really sort of an indicator species fish. So they're a fish that needs to go back to their home pond and their home stream. These small fish travel down to the Carolinas, and then they want to come back to Maine, and they want to come back to one specific home pond and stream. And when that um, stream gets blocked by, let's say, a mill site, which so many did around Maine um, a number of years ago, um, they can't come back anymore and that connectivity is lost. <clears throat> and those fish are key food for um, the fish in the Gulf of Maine. They're a forage fish. Uh, they're also a key food for mammals and birds on land. So um, they're one small fish and one species, but they're such an indicator of the health of an ecosystem uh, and a watershed. Great. And a shout out to Bailey Bowden, who I know has been active in all of that as a citizen activist. Um, uh, you know, ba Bailey has really um, allowed people to, to understand um, the importance of the alewife and as part of the economy, as part of the ecosystem. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> So um, what are the skills and the new new um, values that you would bring to the, the land trust movement um, as a result of this work? I mean, certainly Sione's example of needing to partner with fisheries experts um, is an example. Hans, can you think of other things that you'll need as you think about the, 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 the next 50 years? Yeah, um... Let me let me say a couple of things about the the the, the alewives and the fishways um, uh, b before I do that because I think there there there's a deeper for me there's a deeper meaning to those fishways um, as important as all the ecological stuff is and and the anadromous fish runs on the east coast are pretty crippled and bringing one of them back to life is is pretty amazing. Two things about the fishways which I have been really struck by. Um, what a cultural and community uh, event alewives and their and runs in the spring have become. Um, enough of these alewife runs were historic even a couple of generations ago. And so grandparents have been able to bring grandchildren to, to watch something that they saw when they were kids. And it's been I was really I was really surprised at how important that was to to people. Um, the other part of it that I find really interesting is that these fishways are going to need to be um, maintained in some respect or another. They, they're going to need to be cleaned out. The, you know, we need to make sure that beavers don't dam them up. And and so there's going to be an ongoing project of of making these things work. And that goes back to what I was talking about with human relationships, you know, with, with like, you know, putting human hands on the, on the land. Um, because I have no doubt that, you know, five, six, 7,000 years ago, when this land was actually rebounding out of the ocean and those streams were beginning to flow, that the ancestors was ancestors of Wabanaki people were there helping fish <laughs> get up the river, right? Because it was a benefit for the entire system. And so there's a, there's a, there's a deep connection, you know, with bringing these, these beings back onto the, you know, into the landscape. It's, it's really important work. And I think that's, Again, I go back to that, you know, I, I think we need to think much bigger in the land trust world. Um, you know, we, 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 we have been pretty steadily moving away from a transactional model of, of land conservation for, you know, 15 or 20 years now. And, and um, uh, in all these ways, I think we're, we're trying to be more aspirational in the way that we do conservation. Um, and that's a, that's a, that's a game that requires partnering with a lot of organizations and people that, 
have you know have not been sort of traditionally thought as part of our our business model, if you want to use that term. Um, so this notion of part partnership and human relations, um, those aren't necessarily skills that um, a, a conservationist might have learned in school um, 30, 40 years ago. These are skills that you're having to add as individuals or as organizations as you acquire staff. And Sarah's position is an example of saying, OK, we, we beyond just protecting farmland, we've got to help farmers and that's a different set of skills. Um, so each of you could talk a little bit about the skills that you imagine needing going forward, if you would, just, just to, to help listeners understand the evolution of, of this work. Um, Sarah, talk a little bit about um, that evolution for Maine Farmland Trust. Sure. Um, and in doing so, I just want to mention our founding executive director, Luana Perkins, who just retired a few weeks ago and who we miss dearly. Uh, Luana was a lawyer, and so what she brought to us as we first got started 20 years ago was the legal expertise to figure out how to write an easement and get it done and handle real estate transactions. And I think those, you know, as I'm sure for many land trusts, are, were kind of the foundational skills. You know, how do we essentially do a real estate transaction and manage the outcomes into the long haul. So the first steps that I, I see in MFT's history were getting our, our method of placing easements underway, raising the money to be able to purchase easements. So the incredible fundraising skills of a John Piatti, one of our early presidents, I think were essential. And then building up a good stewardship program, which Lindsay Marston, our stewardship director, has really done in the last seven or eight years so that we now have people visiting every farm every year. But looking to the future, as you ask, with all of the other things we're now thinking about, like the kind of business support farms need, an understanding of how climate change will impact farms and what farms can do in response. These are some of the new skills that we need. And they're not so easy to find. Um, we have two great business planners on staff who both have great experience in farmings and farming and who have really honed their skills providing business planning assistance to farms. But what we've found when we've tried to hire someone in for those roles is that most people in business school aren't learning how to work with small businesses <laughs> these days, you know, and we, we kind of know that. Um, but it is really hard to find someone who has both the business and financial expertise and really gets small farming. So that's been something interesting that I, I've kind of pondered as we look to expand and we would like to expand the kinds of services we offer to farms to help them plan for their businesses amidst climate change. And also when their farms are in transition, when they're looking for a successor, because that is uh, often when we're working with farms to do land deals. And so we'd like to offer business assistance then as well. Um, and then on the, the soil health and climate side, as Sono is saying, sometimes you need people with that kind of particular scientific expertise to come in and help us determine, you know, what is the right, what are the right sets of practices that we should consider compensating farmers to do? And on the farming side, a lot of the science around carbon sequestration is still in a research phase. You know, carbon on farms changes a lot. It's hard to, to know what is really additive and staying in the soil in the long run. And these are problems that, that businesses and government are trying to figure out as they look at carbon markets for agriculture that we are you know, not on the forefront of trying to figure out by any means, but we're seeing the need for people who have more expertise in soil science, in carbon sequestration, as we look to expand our work to support farmers as they adopt different and better soil health practices. Siona, what are some of the skills that you might have acquired on the job and what do you see going forward? What are the kind of the, the skills and values that um, organizations like Maine Coast Heritage Trust will need in the future? Yeah, I think you bring up a good question, Ron. So I am an, maybe an outlier in this in that I actually came in from the people side of this. Uh, my background's in international relations before I came into conservation work. So I didn't come at it from the science standpoint. Um, but I agree that I think, you know, 
because what we're so often doing is working with people and either creating a long-term partnership through a conservation easement um, or a working farms easement, or we are working with a community to create a space that works for that community. Um, People are going to be ever more important to this work. The ability to listen, the an understanding of town government function uh, is going to be important because um, that makes things take longer and have a lot more steps. And yet I think often um, makes them better, makes the project better and more meaningful. So I do think that um, uh, and not only an ability, but an interest in working with people and really listening to people like a Bailey Bowden, mm-hmm. sort of a, 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 you know, a superstar of, of community input <laughs> and caring uh, is going to be so important to our work. You know, and another skill set I'm going to raise up that I think all the trusts here do is we're going to need to find funding because this work in this real estate market is getting ever more expensive and um, we're fortunate that, you know, Maine Farmland Trust uses a lot of federal funds um, and grant programs to pay f- um, for some of the farmland protection. Blue Hill Hairs Trust and our trust also are able to bring in federal and state um, funding. So we, we are bringing money into the state to sort of help uh, do this work as well. And that's going to be an important skill set over time. Mm. Hans, maybe you could speak to um, how you think this kind of effort, this connecting people to the land, might affect local fundraising, local support. Um, uh, again, each of the land trusts that, that are represented today and, and all of the others in Maine just rely so much on that private support. Um, what, are, what, are you, what vibe are you getting um, as you think about broadening the, uh, the work of, of your land trust, for instance? When I think about the people who support Blue Hill Heritage Trusts, uh, it's a range of it's a range of opinion and a range of of, of understanding. Um, we still have supporters who are very much about like you, you guys buy land. That's what you know. That's what you do. <clears throat> um, we have a, a number of supporters who get the the um, the that human capacity within an organization is actually a, you know, it, it's a, it's a force multiplier for actually getting that the land protection done as well as doing a lot of other, other things. Um, so that is really our chief, one of our chief educational outreach components right now is, is getting people to understand the, the community aspect of, of land trust work and the, the, the human side of things. Um, you, you all have sort of touched on an interesting uh, point, which is worth, worth highlighting, which is um, there is no place where you can go and be trained as a private conservationist, <laughs> right? Um, the last I knew there was one course being taught at UMass Amherst and there may be a few other courses, but there's no, there's no minor, there's no certificate program. There's no, you know, there's, so there's no professional school for the work that we do. Um, and that's probably a hole that needs to be filled um, at some point because the work is now, Sarah was absolutely right. The, you know, the original set of skills was real estate law right and if you had a handle on that you were good but the work has gotten pretty complex now and i i do believe that professional training is is necessary um uh, and you can come at it from a number of different points of 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 view um as i think we all here have you know we all have life experience that we brought to the to this work um and you can plug in in various ways but um having having some sort of organized educational uh, uh, effort around this work, um, I think is necessary increasingly. Well, let, let's uh, begin to close down. I'd, I'd certainly love um, when we were um, broadcasting live, we'd have questions from listeners, but um, maybe we'll just kind of uh, um, begin to, to wind down by asking each of you, uh, what, what, what excites you about your work? Um, what gets you up in the morning and ready to go? What's, what are the most satisfying aspects of, of your work? Uh, Sarah, start with you, and then we'll um, go to Siona and then Hans. Great. I really like working with farmers. I think farmers are 
incredible people, small business owners, stewards of the land, um, usually pretty weird and delightful in that way. <laughs> the kinds of people who like getting their hands dirty and, um, and usually just have a great, great sense of humor. So I really enjoy my role, which I see as kind of shepherding this network of farmers that we now have on our protected land and working with them to get, you know, this I think goes back to what Sayona was saying about working with people. You know, now we have all these easements. There's a person connected with every single one and getting to know that individual, getting to know what they're worried about, what keeps them up at night, um, how we can help, where we can't help and just need to listen I think those relationships with farmers are the part that I enjoyed most. Mm. So, I know what's what what uh, excites you about the work? What's what's most satisfying? Yeah, for me, um, we live in such a special place, uh, and often when I leave it on a visit, as I just did, <laughs> and come back. I am reminded um, the incredible natural landscapes we still have uh, and um, rich with wildlife in so many places. We're so fortunate. So um, not only do I enjoy being being where we are and working to try to keep some of it the way it is, um, but I too really enjoy meeting people and the challenge of trying to figure out the right, the right way to help them do something with a piece of land that will keep it intact or let it be shared with others or um, whatever the goal is. It's really the working with people part that I, that can often be frustrating, but also very enjoyable. Um, there are some pretty wonderful people out there who care a lot about land uh, so like Sarah, I really enjoy that process and I like the challenge of trying to figure out the best way to, to get things done. So. Mm. Hans, what, what, uh, is most satisfying about your work? Yeah, a couple of things. I, I have five amazing people who work for me at Blue Hill Heritage Trust and, and, um, to some extent I live vicariously through them <laughs> as they go out and do their work. Um, I get to, you know, sort of plug into the various aspects of what the, what the trust is doing. And, and that's, it's very exciting to see where they are thinking and where they're going and the connections that they're making and, and really moving things forward. So that, that's, that's really exciting and satisfying. The other the other part sort of touches on what Sayana just said, which is that um, this peninsula is going to change. Um, I think climate change is going to have ecological effects here on this peninsula. We're going to have to mitigate for the effects of that. But I really think that the chief effect of climate change on this peninsula is that it's going to look like a really nice place to live in comparison to a lot of other places. And I think the developmental pressure that, that we're seeing now is only going to build. And so trying to envision a future where we have twice as many people on the peninsula as we do now, if the peninsula has the carrying capacity for that, um, and what does that look like? And how do we keep this the kind of place that when you go away, you want to come back to, <laughs> like Siona just said? Um, because right now, it does, you know, it, it very much feels that way. Um, it's great to go away, but it's really, really great to come back. And um, that's, the, that's the chief challenge, um, to maintain, you know, quality of life, to use sort of a nebulous term. But that's really what it comes down to. Um, that's the heritage part. Right. And I, I, <laughs> the other thing that I hear in your your stories is um, what's satisfying is being able to look back 20 years, 35 years, 50 years and say, this is what we've accomplished so far. This is the foundation on which we're building, um, um, uh, not just for for uh, natural um, values, but for community values. And Hans, you've just mentioned that um, that's part of your work. How can how can um, listeners find out more about your organizations? Hans, um, just um, give us your your website or um, highlight something on your website if you if you'd like to do that. 
Yeah, I, th I think for primary engagement, I think the website is uh, the best place, and it's www.bluehillheritagetrust.org. Um, and right on our main page, we, we have a really nice video that people can sort of step in and, and understand a little bit of the history and where we are today um, and look at events that are going on and some of our organizational documents. Um, and then... Um, uh, if you're in the area, come to come to an event or step in um, to that sort of thing. And that's that's probably the, the best first thing to do. Sarah, how about Maine Farmland Trust? How do people learn more? We also have a website, mainefarmlandtrust.org. But I would say for people who not only want to connect with our organization, but the larger world of farms in Maine, that it would be worth their time to get on Instagram or other forms of social media, because we often are highlighting the other things that farms in Maine are saying and sharing and different events and gatherings. Um, and, and like Hans, you know, we have a lot of summer events that I hope people will join us for at farms all across the state. So I think that's a great way to get involved and see some beautiful farms. And and to meet your local farmer. <laughs> and meet your local farmer, exactly. Right. Siona, how do folks find out more about Maine Coast Heritage Trust? Yeah, thanks, Ron. Um, we, too, have a website, of course, mcht.org. Um, and I would mention... Uh, while I encourage people to go to our preserves and check out the special places, sometimes that's not possible. Uh, and we have a great set of videos on our website where you can explore places from your armchair if need be. So um, there's a lot of information and ideas on the website. And I would also raise up um, mltn.org, which is a program, our main land trust network program on our website. Um, and that is where you can find a land trust. Uh, so you can look by town, by part of the state, or else by land trust name and figure out who is working in your area. Great. Well, let's um, go around one more time briefly um, and just share your hopes. Um, so I'm going to start with you. Um, what are your hopes for the future as you th get, think about this work? Yeah, my, my hopes are probably... Uh, too large to be realistic, but we'll just we'll just think in terms of another 50 years the way you started out, Ron. Um, my hope is that Maine can be a place with some resilient landscapes um, that are unbuilt and that have room around them so that with the pressures of, of uh, time and change, uh, they stand the test of time. Um, I'm going to add free-flowing streams and rivers as something that I would love to see. Um, room for our salt marshes to grow uh, in, in at least some of the places. And I think I would raise up two other aspects, which are what we've just touched on. I hope that Maine can be a place where people care about that. They value these open spaces and these natural spaces and value this work and understand it. Um, and... Maine is unusual in having such a strong network of organizations that collaborate in the conservation community here. And I really hope that that continues because it is so effective. Great. Thanks. Sarah, what are your hopes for um, your organization and for Maine? Yeah, that was really well said, Siona. I think what I think about um, as someone who started farming in Maine and then left for five years to farm in the Hudson Valley, I am very aware that Maine is really on the cutting edge as far as being a place with a lot of amazing food systems, organizations, and land trusts really working to make farming viable in the long term in the state. And we're just, you know, light years ahead of where other people are, even in New England, and in a really great position with such a large land base to be um, really the place where a lot of food is produced for our whole region. So I hope that that continues to happen in balance and that farmers continue to be able to run viable businesses in the state. Great. Thank you. Hans, last words to you briefly. What, what, what's your hope? My, my hope is that conservation lands in Maine can be the foundation for a whole lot of, of innovative work in bringing communities together, um, 
finding new economic models that are more robust and sustainable um, than the than what we live in um, at the moment. Um, that right. land land can be the, the the foundation for for something something innovative and new. I think that that that's what I'm really looking at when I think about the obvious <laughs> 50 Great. years from now. Great. Thank you all. We've come to the end of the hour. Be sure and join us from 4 to 5 on the second Wednesday afternoon of each month for Talk of the Towns. Podcasts of our programs can be found in the archive section of the WERU website. Please tune in to our companion program, Coastal Conversations with Natalie Springle, from 4 to 5 on the fourth Friday of each month with Natalie Springle of Humane Sea Grant. Our theme music is a medley from Coronach on a Balmain House Island music recording. Thanks again to our guest, Hans Carlson, Executive Director of Blue Hill Heritage Trust, Sarah Simon, Program Director at Maine Farmland Trust for Farmland Access and Farm Viability, and Sayona Albrecht, Senior Project Manager for Maine Coast Heritage Trust. Thanks to Amy Brown for helping to engineer our program. Stay tuned for Ralph Nader Radio from 5 to 6, and Jazz Straight Ahead with Larry Stahlberg from 6 to 8. This is Ron Beard, producer and host for Talk of the Towns, wishing you a good afternoon.